came to faith in Christ. Can you remember what that was like? Can you remember where you were when you came to faith in Christ? Can you remember what you were feeling, what you were experiencing when you came to faith in Christ? They say normally that most people come to faith in Christ on one of two levels. Either they know enough they want to or they heard enough they have to. Most people come on the second level. Now there are a lot of people that know this is the truth. I've heard it, I've been in Sunday school class or I've grown up in church and I know that Jesus is the answer, I know He's the only way to heaven. And they embrace Him as Lord and Savior. They know enough that that's the truth and that's what I want. They know He is the way and the only way. Most people, many people that I've at least experienced in life come to faith in Christ on the second level and that is they know He's the only answer they'll ever have to get out of the circumstance or situation that they're in. That He really is the way, the truth, and the life but they're hurting so bad and they're situation or their circumstances so difficult either physically, emotionally, relationally that they know that that's what they need, desperately need in their life. And so they accept Christ as Savior. A lot of people stop there. They see Christ as either fire insurance. I, I know there's a heaven. I know there's a hell. I've heard that. I've been in church a while. I know that that is the truth and and I don't want to go to hell when I die. I want to go to heaven. Jesus is the way. I accept that. That's where I want to go. And, and they cross that line into salvation. They experience faith in Christ. And, and they like that. They like to know that their eternity is secure. And they accepted Jesus. And that's about all they want. There's others that like their relationship with God. They like their Sunday morning experience. They like coming to church. They like what it does for them. I hear it all the time. I, I go to church because it makes me feel good. I come on Sunday morning because I love the praise or I love the preaching. I, I love going to Sunday school class. I like learning about the Word. And it, it just kind of helps me balance the week. kind of helps me find center for the week. My week, my world, whatever that may be, and you know your world is different than mine, is, is extremely draining. You don't know the people I've got to deal with or the circumstances that I'm in or the job that I have. And, man, I, I live for Sunday because it's, it kind of puts me back on, on balance. It kind of brings some life back into me because my whole week is, has depleted it out of me. But unfortunately, for a lot of people like that, they find that it's one of the things that they have in their life to kind of bring balance to their life. And, and they like their relationship with God. They like that experience with God. They like what happens on Sunday morning. But it's just one of the things they have that kind of checks off their week. There's others that if something else came in the way of that Sunday morning experience would probably take it. I, I go to church most of the time. Most Sundays I'm here. But a lot of other things, you know, I, I've got to do or get in the way. And, you know, summer's here, fishing season's around the corner or camping season's here and you kind of get out of the habit and, and then you can fall or whatever that may be, get back into it. And if you look at your own experience, you probably may fit in many of those categories. Others of you love Jesus down to your toes and you love what happens on Sunday, you love what happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in that relationship with God. But if we're real honest, a lot of us are in a, a lot of those different categories. And God wants the center of our life. God wants to be number one. God wants the depth of our relationship with Him to be the most important aspect of our life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Everything else falls in line underneath that. But he wants to be first. He wants so much more for us and from us and with us 
than many people, not you, but many others that I know, don't want that. They kind of like it where it is. I, I like to know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I like what happens on Sunday morning. I love my relationship with God. I like Bible study once in a while, and, and, and that's okay. But God has so much more. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, you get more than a Savior. You get a Savior. When you come to faith in Christ, you get more than a Lord. You get a Lord, but you get more than that. When you come to faith in Christ, you get more than forgiveness and salvation. You get that. You get so much more. And that's what he wants. That's really what he wants more than anything else. He wants to be the center of your life. He wants to be number one in your life. He wants to have a relationship with you that you'll get in no other place and from nothing else or no one else. That's what God wants. Anything else outside of that, God in James chapter 4, where we were last Sunday morning and will be for the next two weeks as we wrap up chapter 4, calls it adultery. You know and I know that marriage in and of itself is tough, right? Those of you who are married, Paul said it. I just want you to know. Sometimes it's better to be single. He says that. He said, I also want you to know if you get married, you're going to have some trouble. How many of you can say amen, Paul? I'm with you. I, I agree with that. He said, it's going to be difficult. Marriage conflict in and of itself brings an enormous amount of complexity to your relationship. I heard a pastor this week telling some stories about marriage. A couple of them I can't tell you this morning. They were hilarious. You ought to hear it. Should have been, no. But he said, you know, it's just so difficult sometimes in this marriage relationship because so many things complicate the relationship. Conflict, number one, kind of completes it as well as it also brings friction in the relationship. Told a story about a couple who was adamantly opposed to the situation that they were in, fighting all the time. Finally, they had just stopped fighting, quit fighting, quit talking altogether. Weren't saying a word to one another. They were passing notes to each other. It was so tense in their relationship. Went to go to bed that night. He had to get up early in the morning to fly out to a flight somewhere for a very important meeting. Had to leave it. Get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to catch his flight. Didn't want to say anything to her. Went to bed before her. Put a note on her nightstand. I've got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Make sure I'm up. I've got a very important flight. Don't let me miss it. He went to bed. Woke up at 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Live it. That she had let him oversleep, knowing he missed the meeting, knowing he missed everything, the flight, everything was about to take place. Got up out of bed, was ready to rail her for what had just taken place, only to see a note on his nightstand that said what? It's 5 o'clock in the morning, wake up. <laughs> I'm going, go girl, that was good. Conflict circumstances, job, losing a child, losing a job, tons of things can make it difficult in a relationship to be the kind of relationship in a marriage that you want to have. But there are very few things that can hurt and destroy a relationship like adultery. I've had people who've walked through that who've said to me, to be really honest with you, it's worse than if my spouse died. When my spouse dies, people come to the funeral home and they say what a great person he was or what a great individual they were. And I can agree to that or I can stay silent, but there's a lot of people that come to me and say something about the relationship that I had or the individual that's lying there in the casket. When adultery takes place, no one says a word. 
No one says anything to me. Nobody says anything about me. No one knows what to say. Because of that, they choose not to say anything. What would you say? Other than I'm so sorry and I'm really praying for you. Nothing can destroy a relationship, I think, in many cases, more than adultery. It's a betrayal. It's the ultimate betrayal. But adultery isn't usually a one-time decision. Very few people wake up in the morning and say, you know what, the week's been kind of dull and boring. I think I'm going to have adultery today. No one does that. It usually comes as a result of a number of things, a, a lot of things that has slipped in to the relationship that caused it to not be what it once was. Hopefully, all of you who are married, when you were standing before a pastor one day and he asked you about your relationship and he maybe talked to you in a premarital context, were head over heels in love with the individual you married, that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with them. That when he asked you the questions, will you stay together for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, and sickness and health? Absolutely. Is she going to be number one in your life? He going to be number one in your life? Absolutely. But then as you look back on that relationship, if you've been married a, an extended period of time, you probably have seen some things or the other have kind of slipped in to that relationship. And, and now that person that was the most important person in my life isn't quite as important my hobbies or my job or my career or my aspirations or whatever they may be are just a little bit more important or maybe have gotten in the way and to all of a sudden some some of the things that we once had in this relationship aren't what they used to be and you end up looking around and, and maybe what you once had isn't there and it's one or the other of your fault and you've allowed it to take place and now all of a sudden you find yourself wondering well, maybe I'll find it in him. Or maybe I'll find it in her. And then all of a sudden, then that decision gets made. It's very seldom in all of my experience in all the years of ministry is a wake-up-in-the-morning, one-day decision. It's a series of events that have begun to erode the, the passion and the intimacy that you once had with that spouse that you had committed to spending the rest of your life with. So all of a sudden, someone or something has gotten in the way. And you walk away from that relationship. God seems to indicate the same thing can happen in our relationship with Him. Over the last few weeks, we've been in James. We are today in James chapter 4 in the middle piece. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. As we talk about that relationship that we have with God, that we want with God, that He desires with us, but sometimes allowing other things to get in the way. Marital conflict can be difficult, adultery can be destructive, and those things that get in the way of that relationship can erode what we once had, same thing with God. And so last Sunday morning when we ended the message, we talked about where that was at and and recognizing in our mind that maybe that is where I am in my relationship with God. What I once had, the fire and the passion, the enjoyment of my relationship, the excitement about reading His Word, the excitement about spending some time with Him, the excitement about giving praise and adoration to Him, isn't there anymore. And some other things have slipped in the way. And now my, the, my attention to God and my priority with God isn't what it used to be. I found fulfillment in other things. I've 
found myself slipping away in my relationship with God and and now I recognize that some things have gotten in the way and and, and I want to get back how can you tell that that's happened how can you tell in a marriage if you're honest about your marriage you can tell that in that context of some of the things you once had as you got married you don't have anymore and either hobbies or children I, I know a lot of spouses, women more normally than men, who invest their whole married life into raising children, and they become the priority, and, and all of a sudden they're out of the relationship and out of the home, and the wife looks at the husband and doesn't know who each other is. I, we've told our kids all along, I'm just telling you what, just so you know, your mom's more important than you are. Just want you to know. I'm hoping not to have you for the next 60, 70 years. I'm knowing I'm going to have her. And we were clear right up front. She was more important than them. But you know and I know that we've seen the opposite in so many relationships where because of what maybe a couple doesn't have, they invest their lives into their kids. Could be hobbies, could be career, could be a lot of things. But if you're really honest, you can tell in your relationship with your mate what maybe has slipped into the way of pulling you apart. Think about now your relationship with God. What are some of the things that have gotten in the way? What are some of the things that, when you look at your honest relationship with God, have slipped in so that now God isn't as important as He used to be? It could be hobbies. could be careers. It could be events of life. It could be the stuff of life, the things of life. Could be the things you like to do that, that you only get a certain amount of time to do and so you spend the summer on the road and, and then all of a sudden try to get back into it in the fall and it just doesn't seem the same. All the guys that say, you know what, I don't need to go to church, I can worship God out in the woods. Do you really? I mean, they tell me that all the time. I can worship God anywhere. Well, sure you can. Do you? Oh, well, I can. Do you? I worship God in the golf course. Most of the time they're cursing God when they're out there from what I've heard. But they're usually not worshiping Him. What are the things that have slipped in? Where do you find fulfillment? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your energy? How do you spend your money? How do you feel about sin? Does it impact you as much as it once did? Or now it just kind of slips in so often I... I only do it once a week or once a month. I only get blissed once in a while. I only go out with the boys just, you know, you don't, dude, you don't know what my week's like. Man, on Friday night when the week is over and we've been in the mill all week for 60 hours, i got to go out and just spend some time with the guys. And What slipped in? How do you feel when, when you sin? Do you recognize that it really does break the heart? Do you recognize the price that he paid to set us free? The price that he paid to allow us into our relationship with him. Adulterate, which is a form of adultery, means to add something to the mix that doesn't belong. So often we think of adultery as a sexual relationship with someone else, and obviously most of the time it is, but the, the root word of adulterate means to add something of inferior quality because your mate's the most important, or adding something to the mix that doesn't belong. 
And if we really look at it from that vantage point, then we recognize, okay, there can be a lot of other things that adulterate the relationship more than just a sexual relationship with somebody else, but that have eroded what we once had. When you come to that point of recognizing that, of saying, you know what, I've been aware of that lately. I've recognized the fact that there are a lot of things that have slipped into my relationship with God that aren't keeping me in tune with Him. I, I'm not as passionate about that relationship. I'm not as in love with Him as I once was. I'm not desiring His Word like I once did. That I, I really want to. So what do you do? How do we get back to what we once had? And similar to a marriage, I, I hope you want, if you ever had that kind of relationship in a marriage and you recognize that it was wrong and you want back into the relationship, I hope you want more than just to get back into the house. Because to be honest with you, a lot of guys just want to get back in the house. And God says, I want more than that. And so does she. How do you want to restore what was lost, rebuild what you once had? Some even ask, can I? The answer is yes. The reason is amazing grace. The road is repentance and the process is painful, but absolutely critical and necessary. So what do we do? James gives us seven things in 7 to 10 of chapter 4 that I want to spend the next two weeks unpacking. James chapter 4, verse 7. If indeed I recognize that I have adulterated my relationship with God and that He's not what He once was and, and I want that, more than anything else I want that, how do I get back? What do I do? James says, verse 7, submit. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God. He'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up and put you back, I think he's saying, to what you once had. James' process, sevenfold. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart, weep and mourn, humility, humble yourself. The word submit, you have sermon notes in your bulletin this morning, I think it's goldenrod. Take it out. The word submit means to line up under. In this context here, it means to line up under the authority of God. Not because you have to, but because you want to. One of the basic scenarios, or the best understandings of the word submit is because I want to. Paul uses the same context in a marriage relationship. Wives submit to your husbands, not because they're dominating, not because they're ruling, not because they're demanding, because you want to. You adore this individual. You recognize God's reign of authority, God's rule of authority, God's way of setting the relationship up, and you submit to that. The same as you submit to your relationship with God, not because you have to, but because you want to. God, your king, your Lord, I recognize that, I know that, I give myself completely to you. I may have done that before. I haven't done it for a while. I want to do it now with you. I want to give myself completely to you. To line up under your authority. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 on your, on your screen this morning. Do you not know that your body belongs to God? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit whom you received from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. God died on the cross. Jesus came. God sent His Son to die on the cross for your redemption and mine. 
And if I embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and I give my life to Him, it's no longer my life, it's His. But I have to believe that. Not just theologically, but practically and then live it out. That I really am not my own. My body's not my own, which we talk about in regards to how I use or abuse my body, what I do with it prior to marriage, what I do with it in marriage, what I do with it in many other contexts. My life isn't my own. My body's not my own. I've been bought with a price. If indeed I've given my life to Christ, then He owns me. And I submit to that. I agree with that. I understand that. I yield my life to your control. He's in charge. I'm not. Now, that's especially hard for men. Most of the time in my ministry experience over the last 30-some years, I have found more women come to faith in Christ than men. Most of the time in a marriage relationship, if you analyze it, the wife will normally come to Christ first before the man. Women understand the context of submission. Men say, you know what? I can do it on my own. That's what Brody's message was all about last night. I can pull myself up by my bootstrap. My daddy didn't need anybody. My grandfather didn't need anybody. Neither do I. And we're somewhat independent. We've grown up in the context of that. We grow up in America that says that's okay. And so it makes it difficult for us to submit to God. If you want the kind of relationship that God wants you to have, that He so delights in wanting you to have, that will fulfill your every desire and your every need. Peter said He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. It begins with submission. To not just receive Him as Savior, not just know that he's the answer and, and I'm going to hell if I don't, so I'll accept him, I'll raise my hand, I'll sign a card, I'll say a prayer. Not just to say that in a context of I've got to get out of this mess. But God, I realize that you're the answer to life. And so I give my life to you completely and I wholly yield myself to you. I submit to you. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the third chapter when he talked about the tongue and, and we talked about that correlation between the Submitting to the bit. If I really indeed want to have my tongue controlled by the Spirit of God, then I've got to submit to that. I've got to allow Him to control what I say and how I say it. He used the context in chapter 3 of verse 3 of being able to put a bit in a horse's mouth so that it will obey us. And when we do that, it turns the whole, the whole animal. Bits were never meant to muzzle, but to direct. To direct in the right direction. Powerful horses who don't submit are useless. No matter how beautiful, no matter how powerful, no matter how wonderful, they're useless. Without submitting, they will never fulfill their function and usually aren't even safe to be around. I love horses. I don't think all dogs are going to heaven. I doubt if all cats are going to heaven. But I know all horses are going to heaven. Because when we come back, we're going to be riding them. And I know Jesus is, and I've got mine already picked out. I love horses. I was in Cattersport in the last 10 years before I came here. We, I rode all the time. A number of people had horses. One of my favorite guys reminded me of John Wayne. I, I'm a John Wayne fan. Now, it's hard for you to believe. I'm sure you figured that out. It reminded me of John Wayne's name was John, of all things. Tough farmer kind of guy. Had a great place. Had a horse named Joe. Most powerful horse I'd ever seen in my entire life. That horse, when he would go to eat at night and put the, trough, put the food in the trough, that horse... Throughout his career of my few years being there and knowing John, that horse ate the bottom of the trough out. I mean, John replaced the bottom of that wooden trough. You think, wonder why you don't cement it. But anyhow, replaced the bottom of that wooden trough a half a dozen times through the years that I knew him. That horse was that intense, that powerful. It was the scariest thing on the planet to be around him. 
When you put a bit in that horse's mouth and a saddle across his back and you rode it, it was the most amazing experience in your life. The horse had power, had confidence, huge. One of the largest horses I was ever on. But in control of that bit and that saddle and the individual on it, he submitted completely to that. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Meek means strength and power under control. Submitted to the master. When you have that in a horse, it can be useful for a dozen tasks. Unsubmitted, it runs wild. And as wonderful as that seems, it remains useless. The same holds true for people. Unless we yield our life to God, unless we yield our life to the supremacy of Christ and the power of God's Spirit, unless we do that, we'll remain useless and independent, doing whatever we want to do. Ever put a bit in a horse's mouth? Any of you ever do that? He has to let you. You notice that? He has to let you. I don't care how tough you are, how big you are, you can't pry that mouth open if he doesn't want that bit in there. And what I love about God is he wants us to want to. He wants us to say, you know what? I haven't done real well at running my own life. Messed it up a lot. A lot of things have gotten in the way. I, I submit to you. I want you to control my life. I want you to control my behavior. I want you to control my tongue. I yield my life to the power of Christ and the Spirit who dwells within me. Ted on Sunday night doing a sermon series for the next few weeks on the power of God's Spirit, life in the Spirit. Incredible material on what it is to be living the kind of life where we are so saturated by the Spirit of God, controlled by the Spirit of God, directed by the Spirit of God, that we will indeed become everything that He wants us to be. That's why He left us His Spirit. But it begins with submission. To say, I'm, in, I'm messed up. You're in charge. I'm not. I give my life to you. I let you control my life. Second step, resist the devil. Resist the devil. That's not the only way to deal with spiritual battles and temptations. But in this context here, it means resist or reject the lies of the enemy. Now that began in Genesis. Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, everything they could have imagined. God was fulfilling every desire they could have had. Every fulfillment they were looking for in life, God had already provided. One thing I don't want you to do, eat from that tree. Satan walks into that experience and basically says this in Genesis chapter Three. You know, God's holding out on you. You really think he meant that? You really think that, no, I, I don't know. You know what I think? I think God's holding out on you. Actually, when you do eat, you're going to know more than, than you know now. Maybe you ought to at least consider that. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman listened and so did the man, and we've been dealing with that ever since. Resist the devil means to reject the lies of the enemy. To resist the temptation to go backwards. Resist the things that he knows is, that we know is pulling us away from our relationship with God. It means to quit living in two different worlds that he talks about in verses 4 and 5. Where I love this relationship with God, but I love what I'm doing in the world. I love all those things that it brings. Quit trying to find life in, in God and stuff. Because Satan's going to come in and say, come on. Everybody's doing it. So you miss a few Sundays. So you don't read the Bible every day. Not that big a deal. 
You look, you've had a tough week. You, it doesn't, it's not a big deal. As long as you're not getting hammered every night and, or every week and driving on a race, it's not that big a deal. Can't give you a Bible verse that say you're going to go to hell if you drink. That's not that big a deal. And on and on the list goes. People say, you know, I, I just couldn't help myself. That's one of his first lies. Because that's not true. If you're a follower of Christ, he said, greater is he that is in you than he that is against you. Now, maybe outside of Christ, that could be true. That's a whole other series of sermons on spiritual warfare and deliverance. But inside of Christ, greater is he who is in you, in 1 John 4, 4, than he who is against you. You have to choose. You do not have to give in. Whatever that may be. Could be R-rated movies. There are times when I see some of them, and I, look at the, I always look at the info to see what it has, and if it has N for nudity, I ain't watching it. If it has language strong, I'm not going to watch it. Well, you know, you know, those words don't stick in your head. Yes, they do. Why do you think the advertisement, advertisement industry spends billions and billions of dollars on 30-second clips to get your attention? Because they know once you do, they sucked you in. Whatever it may be. You don't have to give in. Because the longer you play in both worlds, the longer you think you can do it, the deeper you're going to get enslaved to Satan's lies, and the harder it will be to break. Ephesians chapter 4 said, In, the, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. And don't give the enemy a foothold. The issue here isn't time frame. So many couples will say, Well, the sun's about set, or it's already set. We'll get up this tomorrow night. Or others argue all night because they don't want to go to bed angry. And that's the context of the verse they use. The issue is, although you ought to do that, but the issue isn't about time frame. The biggest issue is the fact that you'll give the enemy a foothold. Because I'm telling you, you leave the issue unresolved and you've given the enemy opportunity, you've opened the gate. I don't know how it happened. Yes, you do. I don't know how this happened in our relationship. Yes, you do. I know I do. I don't know how this happened in my relationship with God. Yes, you do. You've given him access. You've given him access. And the longer the foothold remains, the deeper it will become until it eventually becomes a stronghold, which Corinthians talks about. We have the power to pull down, but a stronghold is an enormous attack of the enemy. People that come to the altar all the time, I don't understand why I sin so often. Don't want to understand why I keep falling in this area, keep doing this, keep looking at that, keep falling in this area. Most often because they've allowed it to remain so long, they've left it undealt with, that he not only has a foothold, he's got a stronghold, and he's attacking you every single day from that particular thing that you have left there, that I would leave there if left unresolved. First Peter 5.8 said you've got to be on your alert. You've got to be alert and sober-minded sober because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Never, ever, ever est underestimate the power of Satan. I can take him on. He'll kill you. Talked to some guys in the book of Acts who said, boy, this is cool. You know, they can cast out demons. Paul was going around doing it, so they thought it was a great idea, and so they decided to do it too. Just claimed the name, said the words, this is great. And demons came out and beat the daylights out of those guys. 
Don't ever underestimate the power of the enemy. Don't ever underestimate the power of a stronghold. Don't ever underestimate the power of opening that door of sin in your life. And what Satan's able to do with that, all he's looking for is an open crack in your life and my life. Believe me, I know from whence I speak. Never underestimate the power of the enemy. Paul, James says, look, it begins with submission. It also continues with resistance. You can't resist until you submit, but once you submit, you understand now you have the power to resist to not give in. Look at what he does. I, I love this. The next piece. When you draw near to God, when you come back to the, he's going to draw near to you. It is a beautiful picture. I've often wondered when James, I'm going to talk about it in a few weeks in a chapter 5, but I've often wondered when James is writing, if he has some images of some stories he, of being around Jesus and listening to all the stories that Jesus taught. When I look at that phrase, based on the context, submit to God, resist the enemy. When you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. It's a beautiful picture of the prodigal, isn't it? Because when the prodigal son recognized that he had all that he could possibly want, but gave it all up, walked away, indulged himself in every pleasure under the sun that he could possibly enjoy, until it didn't do what he thought it would do, he didn't have the fulfillment that he thought he would find, and ended up sitting in a hog trough, slopping hogs, of saying, I've sinned against my father, and what? I've sinned against you, O God. My father's servants have it better than I do, and he runs home. Only to find what? The father waiting there with open arms. Come on back. Come on home. Puts the robe on him, sacrifices the calf. It's an amazing story of God's incredible love. And I've got to believe, or I've often wondered, when James is writing this out, submit to God, resist the enemy. You draw near to him, he will come near. God isn't in heaven like some of our fathers used to be. Look, you made your bed, you lie in it. You messed up, you paid the price. Don't come running to me. God says, you come running to me. Man, my arms will be open, and I'll take you home. Fourth thing, and we'll quit today. Cleanse your hands. Know what that means? Better quit. Quit the behavior, quit lying, tr quit trusting in things for your security, quit doing the behavior, whatever it may be. Verse 417 ties in here beautifully when it says, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it for them, it's sin. For some of you, it may be, you've got to quit drinking. You've got to quit looking at porn. You've got to, and it, whatever that list may be, it could be different for all of us in the room. But cleanse your hands mean I've got to, and we go to purify your heart next week, but on the outside, I've got to stop this behavior. Stuff I've got to do on the inside, we'll talk about next Sunday, but I've got to stop this behavior. <coughs> cleanse your hands. Quit. Because the only thing in life that will give you absolutely everything you're looking for and then some is Christ. It begins with submission. Then you have the power to resist the enemy. And when you do, he'll come running with open arms, inviting you back to what he wanted so bad for you to have with him that you may have once had, but now don't. Let's pray. God, one of the hardest things for me sometimes is there's so much in this I want to share in the time frame I can't. 
But I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the cross, as we walk through these steps and then begin to see this as not just simply a decision but a lifestyle, it could change our lives. It could change our relationship with you. It could certainly change our marriages for those who equate this with marriage. And so I ask, oh God, that you, by the power of the Spirit of God, will speak to us in loud and clear ways. In our marriages, what's gotten in the way? Could be a hobby, could be raising kids, could be uh, the stuff of life. What, what has gotten in the way to keep us from what we once had with a spouse that we were head over heels in love with that now we're not? That's easy to identify. Help us to do the, the same thing in our relationship with you. What's gotten in the way? The Spirit of God, in just these, these couple of moments, speak. And let us hear your voice.